Good morning. It's always good to see you. There's somebody in the church who says, and I've started saying it once in a while, you say it's good to see you, and they say, well, it's good to be seen, as opposed to being horizontal, I guess. Or, um, I want to just give a push, pastoral push, to the Good Friday gatherings. We did this last year, maybe a couple years now, where we essentially have several geographic locations throughout the area of our, of our church family. Got a couple in Baldwin, a couple in Chesterfield, uh, one down towards Wash U. Uh, some of our Wash U students are going to host that one. Um, Kirkwood, Manchester. And it's set up for, oh, maybe 10, 15, 18 people to gather together in a home and just reflect on, on the significance of this day in our in our lives, in our faith. Um, you might be gathering with some folks that you've never met before, and that's kind of cool, folks who happen to live in that area. And so really, really want to encourage all of you to put that on your calendar, Good Friday evening, 7 o'clock. Pick a location that will work for you. And uh, again, the sign-ups, we really would like you to sign up so that the host couples or host families have an idea as to how many people to plan for. And uh, probably run about 45 minutes to an hour uh, together. And if, you, if they want to hang around longer and have some refreshments or what have you, that's totally fine. It's just a good opportunity to be the church, be the people of God, and especially at this time of the year. We're in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11 this morning. Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Let me read it for us. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> So let's, let's pretend, okay? When you were growing up, you played let's pretend, right? Maybe even as adults, we still play that game from time to time. Uh, just I'll give you a couple, and you can, you can even give me some verbal responses to these. Let's pretend as if you won yesterday's lottery Powerball of $385 million. Now, of course, you didn't buy the ticket. You found it on the parking lot at Schnucks. <clears throat> Nevertheless, you won. You had the winning ticket. What would you do with $385 million? Give me a couple responses. Pay off all debts. Do you have that much? Oh, everybody's debt. <laughs> That's a lot of debt. Yeah, pay off debt. Somebody else? 
Give a tithe to the church. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Give it to Bridge of Hope. Give it to ministries. Yeah, give it to ministries that need it. Buy a Christmas shoebox for every child in the world. Yeah. Pay taxes. Yeah. A good chunk of it would disappear, wouldn't it? <laughs> you got some good ideas here. Okay, how about this one? Let's pretend as if time travel was a real possibility. What era would you like to travel to? Raise your hand for this one. What era would you like to travel to? Alec. 2013, so I could invest in Bitcoin. <laughs> 2013, so I could invest in Bitcoin. Not bad. Somebody else. What era would you like to travel to? Some of you history buffs. Yeah. 1930. Because? Huh? Big band era. Yeah, that makes sense for you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? That'd be very cool. Okay, here's one more. And this one leads us in for this morning. Let's pretend as if we are actually living in the last of the last days. Would you live any differently than you are right now? See, there's a perspective or an outlook on life for a Christian that Peter was wanting to impress upon those people to whom he was writing and, and which the Holy Spirit would want to impress upon believers in every generation. And that is to live as if the end of the ages were at hand. Because that's exactly what he says. The end of all things is at hand. Potentially imminent. Now Peter tucks this little section on how to live as believers in light of the end times in the midst of an extended section on suffering. <clears throat> We've been looking at suffering two or three messages over the last month. And he seems to be wanting to give them some very basic, practical advice for how to conduct themselves on a daily basis in such a way as to make a difference so that they don't get so overwhelmed with this suffering concept that they just forget how to live on a day-to-day -day basis. He's going to give them some very practical suggestions for how to live out their faith. Because, friends, it's in the everyday of life that we live out our faith, right? <clears throat> it's not the big things. It's not really the big events. And the, you could probably look at your, your, the timeline of your life and see a few little, you know, giant blips where major things happened. A major crisis or a, a big decision or something. It's sort of a, a big, giant blip. But most of life is lived in the... The Monday through Friday, you know, 24-hour cycles of life. And I think Peter just simply wanted to help these folks know how to do that. And so he begins by reminding them of the times in which we live. He wants for them to have what I'm referring to in point number one is a heightened awareness of the times. That believers should have a heightened awareness of the times in which we live. <clears throat> Verse 7, the first part, the end of all things, is at hand. <clears throat> the end of all things. The end of the story as we know it. The final chapter, the last act. The end of this current age is near, is what Peter's saying. 
See, the Bible teaches us that all of history is purposeful and is heading toward a God-ordained finale, an objective, a goal. The history of humanity is not this never-ending cycle of meaninglessness. No, not at all. The history of humanity has a beginning and it's going to have an end. You know, everything has a beginning and an end, right, except God. Everything else in the world has a beginning and an end. Every book, every baseball game, every concert you go to, every sporting event, every life has a beginning and an end. Every day, week, month, year, century, millennium. And the days in which we now live, which the Bible refers to as the last days, the last chapter, the last chapter has the last of the last. Peter says that the end of all things is near, is at hand. And God's plans are fixed. We know that. There's a calendar in heaven with the return of Christ already scheduled. And only the Father knows the day. Matthew 24, concerning that day and hour, so very specific, concerning that day, concerning that hour, no one knows, Jesus said, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so we are living in the last days. And as living as we are in 2018, some 2,000 years since Peter wrote those words, it's more safe to say that we are living in the last of the last days. It would seem to be the case. And so every generation of believers... Since Peter's generation, you know, in the 5th century, in the 10th century, in the 15th century, in 1780, in 1930, every generation read these words, and every generation is expected to take them to heart. That's to be our perspective. That's to be the outlook of the church, the outlook of the believer. Is that yours? Is that your perspective? Is that your outlook as you travel through life? The end of all things is at hand. Or are we guilty of entertaining the same thoughts as the scoffers throughout history? Where is this end you keep talking about? You know, there were scoffers in Noah's day. Noah, come on, man. Where is this flood you keep talking about? I mean, you, my dad told me that you were talking about it 50 years ago, and now... Now here I am, and you're still talking about it. Where is this judgment? You see, regardless of the century in which we live, believers in every generation are to live with a heightened awareness of the, of the end, end times. And that will motivate us to live our lives every day with much greater care and diligence and intentionality. Live as if the end is near. Live as if the Lord's return is imminent. Paul told the Christians in Rome, Romans 13, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. There's that phrase again, at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And so he's calling for a, a change in the way you live based upon the fact that the day is at hand. Or Ephesians chapter 5 Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, 
making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. The last days are filled with evil. Well, then Peter gives some specifics. And what I find really interesting, I don't know if you thought about it as as we read those verses, as you look at them right now in your Bible, what I find interesting is that Peter doesn't really suggest anything that has any kind of emergency panic to it. You know, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Whoa, what do we do? Go out and build a bomb shelter? Um, Should we sell our homes and form a commune? No, there's no sense of panic. Rather, he just seems to be calling them to live really good, upright, loving, caring, controlled lives. And first he calls us to do what I would describe as an honest self-appraisal. He says, therefore, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And so you need to do a self-appraisal. Where am I lacking in self-control? Where am I not sober-minded? And what does it mean to be sober-minded? You see, if we're living as if the end may be near, we don't know how near it is. We don't, and we don't speculate on that. The Bible says don't do that. But we're to live as if the end may be near. Peter says you want to make sure that your personal life is in good repair. And apparently, self-control and sober-mindedness are going to be two key elements to making sure your life is in good repair. Self-control and sober-mindedness. So let's think about these two elements. Self-control. What's it like when something gets out of control? Well, when a crowd is out of control, it's a riot. Okay? I'll give you some pictures to think about some of these. When a crowd is out of control, it's a riot. When a fire is out of control, it's a blazing inferno. When a train or a vehicle, a car, a semi out here on Highway 40 is out of control, there's generally massive destruction and loss of life. When a person with a gun is out of control, it's a tragedy waiting to happen. What about when a person's life is out of control? We don't generally think of those kinds of images for a person's life being out of control. And yet it's very similar in a lot of regards. Some other verses that address self-control. 2 Timothy 1, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. 1 Corinthians 9, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, when it's addressed in the Bible, self-control primarily has to do with two critical areas that are actually pretty connected to a large degree, to control your passions and to control your emotions, Passions, your cravings, your desires, your lusts, your appetites. Emotions, your feelings, your affections, your sensitivities. Now, can we just be honest? We don't really care for self-control. Can we just be honest about that? 
And it's exacerbated by living in a very sensual, sense-driven, materially-oriented culture that is constantly beckoning to us to allow it to satisfy our cravings and our desires and our appetites. We'd rather allow our desires just to have their own way. It's so much easier to go along with whatever the flesh wants, so much easier to go along with whatever the pressures of the world are calling me to succumb to. I mean, the call for self-control presumes that there is some area in my life that just might be out of control. That's the assumption. And if I'm honest, I'd rather not have to deal with that area of my life. I'd rather just allow it to do its own thing. Can you relate? There's a really interesting narrative as I was studying this week in Acts 24. The Apostle Paul is brought from prison to come before Felix, the governor, the Roman governor. And Felix was known for his greed as well as having married another man's wife. And it says in Acts 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he, Paul, reasoned, now notice this, this trinity of troubling topics for a man who was controlled by his passions. As he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And so you're, you're a man who d- doesn't really live with any control in your life. If you want a, another man's wife, you take her. If you, if you got the money to spend, you'd go over here and get this and get this and do whatever you want. You're feeding your senses. And Paul comes in and basically says, so Felix, let's talk about righteousness. Let's talk about self-control. And let's talk about the coming judgment of God. Those three things. And immediately, Felix suffers a panic attack and says, uh, I think we'll wait to have this conversation until later. You see, classic example of someone who did not want to talk about self-control. <clears throat> Let me give you two admonitions with regard to self-control. Number one, cool your jets. Cool your jets, meaning get your fleshly desires, carnal cravings, appetites, and lusts under control. And again, friends, this is all with the assumption that, that, that you've given your life to Christ. This is not a matter of, of cleaning up your acts so that God will love you. This is not a matter of if I do these things and get myself under control, then I'll be acceptable to God. Not at all. Um, my kids are my kids because they're related to me, and I love them unconditionally. And we have a bloodline. Were there times in their lives when things were out of control? Absolutely. But they didn't get things under control in order to be loved by their dad and their mom. They were called to get their lives under control because they were related to their dad and their mom and loved by their parents. That's the same for us. So keep that in perspective. Fleshly desires, carnal cravings, appetites, lusts. And so you're going to have to do some self-analysis and decide, what are those passions, cravings, desires that need to have the burners turned down just a bit? And they'll be different for you than somebody else. 
sex, food, drink, your desire for material things, the latest fashions, newest gadgets, best sound system, whatever it happens to be that really fires you up. And then maybe you need to fast from something for a while. Whatever you decide it is that is out of control, you may need to fast from it for a season so that your hunger for God rises and the burners in your life for God go up and get hotter and the burners for these passions dissipate. That's what fasting does. Fasting is essentially said, God, I want you more than I want that. I want to be hungry for you. I want my appetites to be satisfied in you more than satisfied over here. And I think it goes without saying, a lack of self-control can just mess you up so badly. Don't we all know stories and probably in our own lives, seasons where there was a lack of self-control? Or you know somebody in your family? It can mess you up physically. It can mess you up financially. It can mess you up maritally. It can mess you up emotionally and spiritually. And so you need to figure out where your jets are burning hot. And then with the Lord's help and probably with some accountability from some others, you need to turn down the burners. Now, to a secondary degree, the Bible also suggests that self-control would deal with the emotional side of our lives. And so my admonition there is corral your emotions. Corral your emotions. doesn't mean to suppress your emotions. Rather, we need to understand our emotions and the role that they're to play in our lives as believers. And when necessary, to train them to serve you rather than to control you. See, God's made us with a wide range of emotions. Several years ago, we did a series out of the, I think the Pixar movie, Inside Out. Great little movie that deals with the emotions. It's worth watching, I think, once, what, Taylor, once a year? Pull that movie out. (laughs) Uh, Fear, anger, sadness, joy, disgust. Emotions are a gift from God. And just like your passions and desires, they're good as long as they're not controlling you in a destructive fashion. See, the Bible's filled with emotion. Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? So there's discouragement, depression. Proverbs 15, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. There's anger, rage. Genesis 32, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, fear. John 4, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, loathing, disgust, prejudice. And so fear can become an all-consuming anxiety, anger can turn into rage, sadness can morph into a debilitating depression, disgust can lead to prejudice. And so your emotions need to be corralled. You need to understand, what are those emotions that drive you? Is there any emotional side of your life that's out of control? Are they serving you? Are your emotions serving you? Or are you serving them? Then he says we are also to be sober-minded. And so self-control, sober-minded. Sober-minded obviously has to do mainly with your thoughts, your perceptions. It literally means to be in one's right mind as opposed to be, are you out of your mind? Have you lost your mind? And so it includes sound judgment, 
being mentally alert, keeping watch, having a clear understanding of what's going on, thinking clearly, soberly about yourself, about the world, about sin, about God, about life. What would you say is the opposite of being sober-minded? I would say being drunk-minded, you know? It's the opposite of being sober-minded is being drunk-minded. T-U-I, thinking while under the influence. And there are so many things in life and in the world that can intoxicate your thinking to where you're not thinking clearly. You're definitely not thinking biblically. And that's what we want to do is think biblically. Some of the things that intoxicate the mind, worldliness, pursuing the same things that the world pursues, valuing what the world values. You can get drunk on money, material things, houses, lands, cars. You can get drunk on man's praise, the quest for success, climbing that ladder, making it to the top, winning, achieving. When a person is not sober-minded, when they are drunk mentally, they are out of touch with reality. You can't see straight. And so I think you can see why Peter puts self-control and being sober-minded together because they are linked together. How you think determines how you live. So a couple of admonitions for being sober-minded. Clear your head. Clear your head. Identify those things that are clouding your thinking. Do some self-analysis about the way you think. Where are you not thinking clearly about yourself? Where are you not thinking clearly about God, about your marriage, about being a good parent, about your finances? Where are you not thinking clearly about temptation and sin? Where are you not thinking clearly about money, about your present or about your future? You're trying to identify those areas where your thinking is just all jacked up because of other things that are being allowed to control your thoughts. And so, Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so, friends, I would just say, when you read your Bible in the morning, when you have your devotions, say, Lord, I pray that you would, you would clear my thinking. Help me to think clearly. Because I'm going to face things this week where I'm going to be tempted to not think clearly at all. Um, Show me those things that are clouding, clouding the way I think. Philippians 4, Philippians 4 also gives a list of things to think about. And the other thing in terms of sober mindedness, crush your pride. And I'm thinking here specifically of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So there's sober-mindedness again. To think about yourself clearly, the way you ought to think, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, as believers, Peter is saying to these first century believers, you need to think about yourself in light of how God has created you. You need to understand that all of the abilities and skills and competencies and, and 
intelligence that you happen to possess is according to the measure that God has assigned to you. It doesn't make you better than someone who has less competencies or less intelligence. It doesn't make you inferior to someone who has more than you or different competencies and skills. Just think about yourself correctly. Because just as God gave those skills and competencies and abilities to you, so he could take them away and give them to somebody else. You have whatever he chose to give you. And so a critical part of being sober-minded, you need to be vigilant and watching out for pride. Be sober-minded and thinking about yourself. And so that's all, that's all, as point number two, that's all a part of doing an honest self-appraisal. When you're living in the, in the, when you're living in the end times, you want to be doing a, an honest self-appraisal of, 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 of your life, the way you think, the way you live, the areas of your life that are out of control. Okay? Then, since the end of all things is at hand, Peter calls for a habit of expressing love. A habit. He says, above all, verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. It says we're to love one another earnestly. It's the picture of, it's the picture of stretching or straining like, a, like an Olympic athlete exerting with all their strength or a horse in the Kentucky Derby, stretching out and running full speed. See, the love that Peter's talking about here is not a sentimental love. It's a very intentional, sacrificial love. It calls for stretching, straining, exerting oneself on behalf of others and for the sake of the church. I imagine there's times in your life as there are in mine when I've got to stretch every spiritual muscle I have to show love. I don't feel like showing love. It's not coming naturally to me. I don't find this person terribly lovable. But that's the kind of love that Peter is calling for here. When you're doing your own suffering, when you're dealing with your own life issues, it's hard to figure out how to love someone else, especially those that you don't know. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, earnest love for one another. And Peter says it's a love that covers over faults. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And so loving your brother or sister in Christ with the love of Christ will allow you to cover over a whole lot of their mistakes and their sins. Earnest love covers sins. Peter says that this fervent love for your brothers and sisters is more important than anything else that you do. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Saying, earnest love is more important than preaching a good sermon. Earnest love is more important than serving on the council of elders. Earnest love is more important than leading a life group. Earnest love is more important than the offering you gave this morning. Above all, he says, 
And just that little phrase caused me to do a little, I said, where else does the Bible use the phrase above all? Well, there are several. And it seems to suggest that whatever it is that you're talking about is to be elevated above everything else in that same category. Let me tell you what I mean. Psalm 95, for the the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. So in the category of gods, the Lord is high and above all the false gods that people worship. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. So in the category of things that are deceitful, the heart wins first prize. Proverbs 4, above all else, guard your heart. So in the category of things that you should protect, guarding your heart is number one on the list. Let me give you one more. Paul told Timothy, when you come, he was in prison, when you come, bring the cloak, also the books, and above all, bring the parchments. He wants the Old Testament parchments more than anything else. He wants the Old Testament parchments more than something to keep him warm and the books that he loves. Here, Peter elevates loving one another above everything else that a Christian is to do. Above all else that you do in the Christian life, I want you to love one another earnestly. Love is more important than anything else. Can I suggest to you that perhaps the best place for Loving one another earnestly here at West Hills is in the setting of one of our life groups. I just want to give a push for life groups. That's where earnest love can really... I mean, it can take place in other avenues. Don't misunderstand me. It can take place in a ministry team. But here at West Hills, one of the best places where you can practice intentionally learning how to love one another earnestly is in the setting of a life group with a small group of Believers, you know them, they know you, you eat meals together, you share your lives with each other, you confess your weaknesses, you confess your sins, you ask for prayer, you laugh together, you cry together. See, love does not become fervent when you maintain separation from other believers. Love does not become any more than a log sitting outside my fireplace becomes hot while the logs inside the fireplace are burning brightly. Love does not become fervent when you are separated from other believers. Fervent love. A habit of love. Number four, I think your notes say a home of hospitality. I changed that to a heart. Because I think hospitality, while it includes the home, I'm going to talk about that for a second, It goes way beyond the home. Peter's calling these believers to have a heart of hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Romans 12 says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, when we think about hospitality, what do you usually think of? Huh? Having somebody over to your house? Yeah? Yeah? Entertaining? 
We, we, we usually relate it to our homes. And obviously, the greatest material resource that most of us have is our home. For most of us, it's probably the biggest investment of your money as well as your time. We enjoy our homes. We're thankful for our homes. They're a blessing from God. Our homes, for sure, should, should be a place where you can rest and relax, enjoy some quiet away from the pressures of your job, a place where you build memories with family and friends, all those things that you associate with the word home. But for the Christian, our homes are not intended to simply be a dwelling in which we can cocoon ourselves from the rest of the world. Rather, we are to take this major, major piece of investment of our money and time and energy in our lives and use it for the good of others. To use it as a haven of hospitality to where we can identify people who need to be encouraged. Someone who's going through a really rough time, just someone needs to laugh. Someone who's, who just needs to get together with you in your home and you turn your home into a place of hospitality and you bless others with it. The obvious root word in the word hospitality is what? Hospital. Hospital. Now, a hospital is a place, hopefully, where people find healing and rest and recuperation, where you're taken care of by others. <clears throat> a good hospital is a place where when you leave, you're better off than when you came in. Now, there are bad hospitals. Hopefully, a good hospital. You leave better than when you came in. And so I would suggest that our homes are to be little hospitals for other people. Now, beyond your home, hospitality asks the question, who do I know who needs to be refreshed? Who do we know that needs an opportunity, a break in, their, in, in, their, in the rigors of life? Who do we know who needs to be treated to dinner? Who do we know who needs to laugh? And then Peter says, do it without grumbling. Have you ever gone to a hospital and had a nurse take care of you who didn't want to be a nurse? Yeah, there's such a difference. Nurses who love being nurses... He or she just does it with great delight. And then there's those, there are those nurses who just kind of, they really don't belong there. <clears throat> well, Peter says, hospitality without grumbling. You do it with an attitude of really, really wanting to bless this other person. Habit of hospitality, a heart of hospitality. And then lastly, Peter calls for a humble exercising of your spiritual gifts. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As each has received. All of you who are here this morning who are believers in Jesus Christ have received a, a gift from God, a spiritual gift. At least one, maybe more than one. The Bible talks about spiritual gifts. These are graces that are, that are endowed to believers by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit decides what gifts to give to which people. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 12, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, the same Lord. There are varieties of activities. It's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
And Peter says, use it to serve one another. And so if you're a Christian, you've received a gift. You've received a spirit-assigned ability that's to be used for the common good, for the good of other people, for the good of the body, the good of the church, the good of the church's mission and ministry. And the, the admonition from Peter is, use it. Use it to serve one another. Use it for the good of other people. If you're not using your gift, you're not being a good steward. God may ask you, why aren't you using what I gave you to serve others? Why do you keep it to yourself? Why aren't you blessing others with that gift? Some speak, some serve, some administrate, some lead, some teach, some evangelize. But everybody is gifted to do something. Everybody is gifted to do something. Just so you know, be clear, the major work of the ministry of West Hills is not done by the elders or the staff. The major work of this church is done by the people. And I commend all of you who serve so faithfully week in and week out. We have folks here at West Hills who are such devoted servants and are willing to do whatever needs to be done who have big hearts, and if you're not careful, those are the people who can grow weary and need sabbaticals from service in order to refill their tank from time to time. I commend those of you who serve so faithfully, but we've got to watch out for you. And as for any of you who, for lack of a better term, are sitting on the bench, might I pastorally encourage you to find where it is that you could use your gift? It might just be the salvation of someone who is really, really tired. Someone who needs a break. Someone who needs a better. Or it might just be a way for you to get to know other people on a ministry team and delight in that and have fun with it. Find a place to use your gifts. And then, Peter says, what is the end result of all of this? The last verse in the section. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So through your self-control, through your sober-mindedness, through living as if you are living in the end times, through your hospitality and your earnest love for each other, God gets glory. In order that in everything we do, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Would you take just a minute, please, and... Pause and reflect on what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you this morning. Lord God, we want to live 
with an end times perspective. You've called every generation of believers to have this outlook on life. The end of all things is at hand. And we would pray that you would assist us and help us to to live accordingly, to live with an awareness of the times in which we live, to live with self-control, that you would give us the strength that we need to bring areas of our lives under your control. We might live in such a fashion that brings glory to you and for our good and for the good of others those areas that are causing destruction or damage to our health, to our finances, to our relationships, to our prayers, to our witness. Help us to think clearly about life, about about you, Lord, about all the things that we encounter. Would you show us the, the areas where our thinking has become pretty fuzzy? Help us to think biblically with sound judgment. Lord, we pray for hearts of hospitality that you would allow us to seek out opportunities to show hospitality to others. Make us a hospitable church in every way where we could refresh each other Lord, above all, give us earnest love. May the love of Christ be real in us and through us so that when others see us, they will know that we are disciples of Christ because of our love for one another. Lord Jesus, we are always humbled and amazed when we think of the cross and what you did for us. No, no greater love has the world ever seen but that when God demonstrated that love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died we praise you today we thank you for the cross we thank you for giving your life shedding your blood that we might have forgiveness of sins we give you thanks and praise in Christ's name God's people agreed by saying...